Let's all go before our wonderful Lord in prayer before we open up his word together for our time of worship in the word. Pray with me, church. Father, we come now to you asking you, as we always do, that you would give us eyes and ears and hearts to be attentive to what you would reveal to us in your word. We recognize that sometimes there are certain passages of scripture and certain truths that are just really hard and weighty to think about. Even as we consider one passage like that today, we ask that you might Show us how these things relate to our lives. Show us how these things should change our thinking, our hearts, our minds, our living, our actions. Lord, we need your word to do that for us week in and week out. And so we ask for your help again today to lead us in that end, to point us to your truth, to make us attentive to the things that matter most in your holy and inspired word. We say all these things in Christ's name, amen. Now you might not like preaching much because you think it's kind of irrelevant or boring. Maybe it's not that strong for you. Maybe it's kind of a take it or leave it thing. You know that's what goes on at church, but it just seems like it doesn't hit home to where you really live. But Jesus, you see, was a preacher who gave his hearers exactly what he knew they needed most. Now, he has the advantage, doesn't he, over all other preachers as he was able to perfectly anticipate the future as the unique God-man that he was. I can't do that. I can't read the future. I don't know exactly what's going to go on in all of our lives. But I do well, I hope you can see, sticking to the script and preaching God's inspired word, which we know is profitable for all of life, even in difficult passages and subjects that sometimes could be hard to hear. But Jesus knew what his disciples needed. Exactly. And we are now going to revisit a theme that Jesus had already touched on in his last sermon that we've already saw in full, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. Let me read it again, this portion, to remind us what he said back then in Matthew 5 in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We know this instruction as part of Jesus' famous B attitudes, don't we? He brought persecution up then, and now he brings it up again 
in his second discourse or second sermon in Matthew, his sermon on mission. Only this time he expands his instructions and gives very specific details and examples of persecution that lie ahead. We just saw that Jesus called his disciples to pray for gospel farmers to be sent out into the harvest the last couple weeks. Because what? The farmer's nightmare of too much gospel work and too little gospel workers was a problem that they were facing and that Jesus was noticing. But remember, as we saw just this past week, the prayer request to the Lord of the harvest was immediately answered in the sending of the original 12 apostles or 12 gospel farmers out into the harvest. Now, as we saw, the sending of the 12 was unique and had some rather specific details for them in that short-term missions trip that they were going on, as we saw. Though, of course, there was so much for us to glean from and relate to in our lives and in our church today. What we see here today in this sermon, Jesus now seems to broaden out, as we will see from his 12 farmers and their immediate mission, out to speak of a future persecution of even other disciples and even them that would come later on. And we're going to see that. We will see this dynamic, really, uh, of the moving context in our passage, and we'll see it even here in the first of our Four points on persecution. Sermon here on the persecution that will come to gospel farmers. And point number one, persecution equipping. Turn with me in your Bibles or see it on the screen to Matthew chapter 10 and verses 16 through 20. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. This is persecution, equipping by Jesus to gospel farmers. Jesus is sending them out as sheep amidst the wolves. He knew what they were going to face. He knew that it would take Resilience and savvy wisdom and Christ-like character to navigate these treacherous waters as we will see through this entire passage. They would have to be on their toes and aware of the dangerous wolves all around them seeking to devour and to persecute them. This is practical teaching by Jesus right now about things that are really going to happen shortly in their lives. In Ephesians chapter 4, we learn the pastors are given as gifts to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, those of you 
who were in our table talks this past semester, you know we looked at that very reality about our local church and local churches in general. But if pastors who are under shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, if they equip the saints, you better believe that Jesus is himself the chief equipper, isn't he? And Jesus knew that these initial 12 gospel farmers were going to go through hard things and that what they were going to go through in the future, he knew all about it and what other disciples throughout all of church history would also go through. So Jesus deciding, I want us to see here, to preach on persecution and to spend so much of his time in this second sermon on the topic reveals how wise and caring and practical Jesus really is. And though we might be, we might need throughout our lives maybe to be instructed like when we're kids and how to tie our shoes or where to go to get our oil changed or even how, to change our oil, or which way is north and which way is south. We might need to learn things like that. Jesus was able to sift through all the things that he could have said and get to what was going to be most important for his disciples to know and to be equipped for. So it's no accident that he spends all this time and brings up this recurring theme of persecution. Why? Because Jesus knew how bad it was going to get. Thank God for the preaching ministry of Jesus and for his word that we can see it today. I think I can do without reading about instructions on how to tie my shoes in the Bible. But I cannot face the insurmountable obstacle of terrible suffering, and persecution without God giving me direction in his word. You see how important this is for us and for them. And so he gives us just that, thankfully. The word really is, I want us to see, profitable and useful for our instruction as 2 Timothy tells us. But were you able to see when we just read it, the broadening context here in the sermon that Jesus is preaching to them? Before, as we saw last week, he said, go only into the Jewish territory from house to house. Remember that, that specific narrow short-term missions trip? And now we see them being dragged before governors and kings and bearing witness before these leaders and even, what, Gentiles as the sermon progresses. That's a broadening context from the short-term missions trip to only the Jewish towns and houses, right? You see that in the text as we just read it. We're gonna continue to see that as we go through. And there is not much evidence in biblical history or in the Bible specifically that there was this kind of severe persecution of the apostles before Jesus had been betrayed and handed over to be crucified. A lot of that would happen later, as we know from the scriptures. Remember, Jesus is sending the 12 out during his earthly ministry. He sent them to do what he had been doing in front of them as a model to them. What? To teach about the kingdom, to preach about the kingdom. 
and heal and to perform miracles and deliver and do all these wonderful things that they've seen Jesus doing and that we've been seeing through Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Multiple examples of that. Now he's sending them while Jesus is still living, whilst Jesus is still on earth, before he died. And this time, they would go out from Jesus and do this ministry together and kind of on their own, not with Jesus, not just watching Jesus do it, but then they would go and do it. But later, of course, they would be reunited with Jesus, and this is all prior to his later death. Certainly, they would have faced persecution on that initial missions trip. Remember, they'd have to dust their feet off if they had opposition and people didn't want to hear their word. There was going to be some of that, but then there was going to be more later that Jesus was warning them about. We can see in the book of Acts, for instance, situations where apostles, you just know this from reading the scriptures, were bearing witness before kings and rulers, don't we? We see the disciples even getting martyred and Christians like Stephen, for instance, giving gospel testimony before a tyrant like Saul of Tarsus, before Saul was converted and later became that, a future, that future apostle Paul, that even through that persecution, there was great fruit in that ministry and then conversion of Paul himself. We see even Paul later being flogged multiple times in the synagogues of all places, religious places of Worship, he was flogged. So this severe persecution would happen later, even as after Jesus had died and then rose again and to ascend on high. But Jesus instructs them beforehand, up front here, which applies and helps even all of us now for later times that, that we may experience in persecution in our lives and instructed the apostles for the immediate challenges, but then also the the future severe persecution to come. We see here Jesus equipping the disciples, helping them out, giving them tools. And it's to a direct answer to the pressing needs of those who would be persecuted in the future. And just as Jesus had told them before that they didn't need to pack up a bunch of clothes and food on their journey because God would provide for their needs to those that they ministered to, as we saw before, he also told them, did we see it just now, that they don't have to worry about all these crazy situations that he's bringing up and mentioning to them and about giving testimony before kings and things of that nature. Now, I don't know about you, the thought bubbles that would have been entering my head during that sermon when I heard all the things that he's talking about. You're going to be going before all the authorities and these big wigs, and you'd have to give testimony before him. I'd be like, whoa, how is that going to work out? And if Jesus didn't answer that question, which he does, I would have been asking him after that sermon, and you better believe that the apostles would have been doing that as well, wondering, what do we do in light of that? What do you expect us to say in this terrible pressure cooker situation? You want us to bear witness in a setting like that? Whoa. Can you kind of provide a little track handout for us so that we can read what that happens to help us out in those crazy moments? Let's see it again in verses 19 through 20 here. When they deliver you over 
Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus, during the sermon, was able to anticipate and read all of the thought bubbles of the disciples as he was preaching and to provide to them what they could never, ever plan out beforehand ahead of time. There were too many moving pieces to give any more specific instructions, but you see, Jesus was like, don't stay up late at night thinking about how you will respond to this prison guard or that soldier or this king or that governor. Don't worry about what you will say to this hostile person in such and such a scenario. This is really helpful for him to say. He's like, I got you covered. Better than written detailed instructions of what to say exactly even. The Spirit who was sent by the Father, which is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, he will empower you in this pressure cooker of a moment, and he will help you in what you are to say. Now notice the context here, church. Christian persecution and intense, high-pressure, unexpected situation for the apostles. Now, in the context, as we just saw it, is this verse to be used to skirt out on our responsibility to to prepare and study the Bible, for instance? Can all of our Sunday school teachers and your preachers just say, well, I'll just show up and wing it because the Holy Spirit will just give me exactly what I need to say when I get up into that pulpit or when I get into that classroom. Is that, is that what it's saying? Other places in Scripture, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, as we just saw Sunday evening service, that we are to study to show ourselves approved to correctly handle the word of truth. This is not at all what the Apostle Paul meant for this verse to indicate in all of our lives. I agree with the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce who said, the promise is not intended to be a lazy man's excuse for lack of thought and preparation in a position that he has foreknown and freely chosen. You see the context? The commentator R.T. France also said, this assurance is not an excuse for failure to make responsible provision for foreseeable needs. He says, to take this assurance as an excuse for lazy preachers insisting that all Christian utterance must be spontaneous and unprepared is to take it seriously out of context. The reason I press home this clarification here is because I think that there are some verses that are so misunderstood and misapplied that over time we get all out of whack with confusing thoughts with misapplied biblical passages. It's also why here on this point, nearly every resource that I consulted in the preparation and thought of this sermon made this exact clarification. Apparently, there has been a lot of bad teaching and scripture twisting on this passage. So at least here at FBC Gallatin, we'll hopefully be able to see it in its context And what it is, that is, the context is that wonderful provision of God for his saints during times of hostile opposition and persecution. That's what we see it. And here in these verses, God here 
Jesus provides for us and Jesus equips his disciples to know what to expect in their lives. We're not talking here about minor opposition. We're talking about serious, severe persecution and trials that they and many other disciples ahead of them would face. Maybe even some here in this room. We don't know the future. We don't know what we might have to endure. In a society and culture that is more and more against the truths and direction of the word of God and Christianity, we don't know what's ahead. Important for us to be aware, to be prepared. This leads us now to our second point. And number two, we saw persecution equipping. Now let's see persecution strategy in verses 21 to 25. Chapter 10 and verse 21 says this. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Notice that Jesus' method for equipping believers to deal with persecution was to tell them really how severe things could get for them. Flogging, dragging before rulers, as we saw in the first point. But now he adds, even family members who we'd hope would love and support us will even in some circumstances be the very wolves inducing the persecution of us. Oh, can you imagine that? This is why any version of Christianity that's like, Oh, come to Jesus, your life is going to get easier, everything's going to be happier, you're going to get wealthier. Oh, just come to Jesus and he's going to make things easy. This is why preaching like that is so false and confusing and wrong because it's a contradiction of the reality that Christians really will face. And I'm thankful to have a believing wife. And I can't imagine how hard it would be to be married to an unbeliever. And I know that that is the case for many Christians. But could you imagine being married to an aggressive unbeliever who was ready to turn you in in hostile persecution-type contexts to be killed because you were a believer? That is some serious persecution. Even families are divided sometimes against each other. Because of the gospel of Jesus, as we're going to continue to see next week. Persecution will be severe, so Jesus, like a good coach, gives strategic insights beforehand into what is coming to them. He shows them the playbook. He gives them 
a strategy. Now, we don't know all the details of everything that the apostles went through in terms of persecution, but according to church history, the majority of the 12, even maybe 10 or 11 of the original 12 gospel farmers, remember Judas was replaced later by Matthias, even 10 or 11, including potentially Matthias, were killed for their faith, martyred. They died. They would literally die. Why? Because they were Christians, not because of old age, not because they got sick. No, because they were Christians put to death. Now, we don't know the details, like I said, but maybe some of them had severe family divisions. And if not, many other disciples throughout church history, and even to this very day, have had family members strongly opposed them. Maybe you had issues with family members who wanted nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ that you so love and proclaim. They want nothing to do with it. Maybe you've experienced it this past week at Thanksgiving gatherings. Change the subject, ignore it, mock it. We recently prayed for the persecuted church during our pastoral prayer a few weeks ago. Do you realize, church, that there are some countries that are so hostile to the gospel that it is illegal to convert to Christianity? Illegal! Against the law! I read an article this past week about a father murdering in cold blood and hatred his daughter, all because she converted from Christianity away from Islam. Listen to the account. In Uganda, Nanvunani Shamimu, 17-year-old, this is one of his daughters, and Nawudo Hasifa, 19-year-old, his other daughter, converted from Islam to Christianity after envisioning the same dream of a man dressed in white clothes who told them to go and be prayed for in the church. The following Sunday evening, after attending service at Kawaga's United Believers Church in Kamuli District, their father, Abdul Hakim Abanda, beat his 17-year-old daughter to death, sparing his elder daughter so that she can fetch clean water for him to perform Islamic ablution. Instead, Nawudo Hasifa fled, his older daughter, to the home of one of the elders of the church leaving behind her father, her father who was exhausted from the beating and resting over the corpse of what to some, uh, to, to what to him was once a daughter, but was now a disgrace that had irremediably violated the purity of his Islamic home. The article says, a terribly gruesome example of familial violence toward Christian converts. Jesus knew what he was talking about when he warned of this bloodthirsty opposition to him, even from family members. Now, in the American culture that we live in today, with the religious freedom that we have and enjoy for so long, stories like this can seem so remote, admittedly, and far off from us. It can. But the fact that these 12 gospel farmers would experience severe, terrible persecution, and the very potential of every believer facing persecution to one degree 
or another means that we must all heed these words and instructions of Jesus. We just don't know what persecution may come our way, but we do know that it will come our way in one degree or another. This is the second time Jesus brings it up in back-to-back sermons. It was important because it happens to believers. That's why he brought it up so much time, times. He said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He knew it and told it like it was. Not a great advertisement for future disciples, but this is the reality that Christians would face. The world doesn't love the gospel like Christians love it. Your family may not love the gospel like you love it. So one of the strategies here was to know persecution was coming in many directions and Jesus gave it to them, even from those closest to them, their families. And didn't Jesus know that kind of persecution himself? Think about it. As one of the 12 he was preaching to in this sermon on persecution would one day soon hand him over to be killed. As Judas betrayed Jesus for money, and Judas was one of the 12 who did not persevere until the end, as the passage says, and he was not saved. So Jesus' warning about persevering was a direct word to those like Judas who are not genuine and who would fall away. But Jesus would even experience close friends and a disciple betray him. But, but isn't this the point here that we saw? Jesus knew from experience what it was to have opposition from others. We have been seeing religious leaders throughout the series, the scribes and the Pharisees, oppose him at every step. And that's his point here in his strategy that he gives his disciples. If they persecuted me, you think you're going to get away scot-free? Think of the logic of it. If they likened my miracles to demons, as we saw before, or and we're going to see in the future, or even, as we see here, called Jesus Beelzebul, or the devil himself, don't you think that you might be slandered and maligned as well? Of course they're going to be slandered. If you're a Christian, you've experienced slander because you're a Christian. You see, Jesus told you that that would happen beforehand. He warned you. He gave us instructions. So Jesus instructs them that when they are persecuted like Jesus was, that they should just move on to the next town because there will be more ministry to be done over there. It's practical stuff. But just as there was more ministry, there would also be more persecution from town to down. And Jesus is kind of like, you will be bouncing around to all of these places in your ministry here. And I'm telling you, just move on to the next town because this is gonna happen over and over again because you will not run out of good ministry to be done in all of your endeavors moving on after your persecution. More opportunities to evangelize and more opportunities for persecution from town to down. He gives them the strategy, the playbook ahead of time. In fact, Jesus would be united again with them later after their initial trip. And and I found uh, Mark Dever's clear and plain explanation of this process insightful So I'm going to pass it on to you here. He says in summary that this process before the Son of Man returns is not speaking about the context with these disciples 
uh, talking to them about the second coming. Though there was going to be a second coming here in the passage, he's not pointing to that specifically, but he goes on to say that when they would later be reunited with them, with Jesus, on the mission field. So Jesus is like, I'm sending you out. You're going to go from town to town. There's going to be a lot of persecution, but you're not going to go through all the towns. There's going to be more and more, so just continue to go on to the next towns. Before we get back together, he points out that the next time that you see Jesus and his disciples back together is in Matthew 12, 1, kind of after we see uh, everything as it relates to John the Baptist in chapter 11. So we're not sure exactly how long this time was, but he's saying just continue to go on. Let's go to the next town. Go to the next town. This immediate context here to them is speaking about that. However, I also think it's helpful to see the instruction and the relevant application to this persecution that goes on beyond that immediate context into the future. And I agree also with the sentiment of what R.S.T. France says. He says, the second coming of the Son of Man is thus not a destruction or description of a particular historical event, but in this passage, evocative language to depict his eventual vindication and sovereign authority. As such, it can be applied to different stages in the outworking of Jesus' mission. So it's relevant throughout all of biblical history, these realities of persecution. So even after Jesus died and he rose again and then was ascended to the right hand of the Father, the apostles would continue to be going from house to house, town to town, with more ministry and more persecution. In fact, that persecution increases and gets greater as we will see in the book of Acts and after Jesus dies. And the disciples of Christ or Christians throughout church history even until his return, even right now to this very day, we'll continue to be persecuted. So these truths still bear clarifying weight to us until Jesus returns. But do you see here, he gives an equipping strategy to deal with this very difficult passage of persecution. Thank God that Jesus gave us this because these things are hard. Because all of this seems really, really dire. I warned you up front that this was hard. That's why we prayed that God would apply these things to us, these hard things to us, because this is dark and hard and seemingly impossible if we really put ourselves into these situations. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of being betrayed, falsely accused, and of course, don't like the idea of one of my kids maybe growing up and throwing me to the lion's den in terms of this persecution within the family that was anticipated by Jesus. So how do we prepare our hearts for this dark and sad reality of persecution that's inevitable for all Christians? What truths ground us and carry us through this terrible potential, these trials that might even be brought into our very lives because of our profession of faith and our faith in Jesus Christ. These first two persecution points basically tell us that it will happen and what to do in light of it. But how do we prepare our hearts and minds to get through these terrible things? This leads us quickly to our third point and number three, to see persecution comfort. Look with me now at Matthew 10 and verse 26 through 31. He says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This is persecution, comfort, church. Here is the firm foundation. Here is the battle cry that I'm sure inspired Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What gave Luther boldness to stand before councils with people who wanted him dead? And depend a hymn like that. It's the rock solid truth of the Almighty sovereign God that we just read about here in our passage. Teachers and preachers and other Christians who deny God's exhaustive divine sovereignty have no hope when it comes to persecution. None. They better go hide in the garage and never come out because. God is just as confused and unaware as they are about future calamities according to their small, puny view of God. That's false. But Jesus gives the persecuted comfort with the reality that God is not surprised by yours or mine or anyone's, the disciples' persecution. He's not surprised. Just as he is not surprised about anything because he knows Everything. And while it may seem like things are all out of control and out of whack, I mean, the Apostle Paul's a really good example for this. The guy went through so much persecution, you can almost start wondering if he was being cursed by God rather than blessed. Let's see it in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. Let's see Paul's persecution. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he goes on with more anxieties and hardships that he bears as an apostle after that. That's not all of it. But what held the apostle Paul strong in his faith? Was it a God who was anxious himself because he did not know the future? No way. You better believe that Paul 
clung to this teaching of Jesus on persecution, that even in light of all the bad stuff happening to him, he didn't have to fear because in the end, all would be made right and would be vindicated and even rewarded for his faithful perseverance through suffering and persecution. Do you see what Paul clung to? Do you see what you need to cling to? Jesus wants us to go tell it on the mountain and to proclaim what we know from him. Jesus just told the original 12 apostles to proclaim what they had learned from him in in secret to go out into public even when others might not like it. And he's telling them they're not gonna like it. In fact, he goes so far to say that even when others might wanna kill them for the message and teaching of Jesus, to keep speaking, to keep preaching, to keep going. The doctrine here of the exhaustive sovereignty of God leads us to rightly fear God over men, over anybody else, to fear God over man, to reverentially be aware of our audience of one and let his rule and reign frame how we approach all of life. That's all over the scripture. So what does Jesus say to them, even also to us to this day, who might wonder about this whole persecution unto death thing? What about that? What about if it gets that bad? He answers with the sovereign authority of God and rightly shifts the fear away from man who might kill the body, as Luther hymn says, shifts it over to the fear of God where it belongs. Let's see it again from verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Do you see that? Is this in your worldview thinking? Do you have this awareness of God? Jesus is talking about God being the one to fear over these treacherous persecutors who might even try to kill them. Don't worry about them. The problem is most people don't see God as a just judge. They see him more like a fluffy fairy or something in our world, soft and would never judge and with no authority. They don't see the God who who sent the waters in judgment as we saw in our Genesis series. They don't see the God who will judge as well, they just see him in some kind of fabricated way that they've made up to their own imaginations. But Jesus is like, they may kill you, but they cannot determine your eternal destiny. Take heart in that. And you know that if you are in Christ, as Paul tells us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord awaiting a future resurrection of the body into the future. So don't let mere men cause you to fear. They can't send you to hell, but God can. Get your fear moving in the right direction is what Paul is pointing them to. And on top of all of that, as it relates to God's sovereignty over all things, he tells them to be comforted by the fact that God knows even the insignificant, seemingly insignificant, tiny sparrows that fall to the ground and die. He knows even that. And he knows each and every one of your hairs on your head. I look around, I see a lot of hairs out there. Hairs on my head. There's a lot, a lot of hair 
God knows them all. Every last one of them. He's so sovereign. His knowledge is perfect and pure. He's amazing. He knows all about you. So you don't even have to fear the unknown because he numbers not only your hair on your head, but the very days of your life. And even if you are to be handed over to death, and remember, the majority of the 12 apostles were handed over in this very way to be killed by their faith. Just to name a few, church history says the apostle Paul will have his head lopped off someday in the future, not recorded in the scriptures, but in in history we hear about that, or the apostle Peter crucified, not right side up like his Lord and Savior. He wasn't worthy of that. He flipped himself He had himself flipped upside down to be crucified unto death. And the other apostles and disciples here, you could look up church history and see that many of them were were killed, murdered for their faith. But Jesus says, even if that were to happen, and, and it would for many, he's got their eternal destiny secure. And he even knows the details of their potential persecution that may lead to death and martyrdom. Just as he knows when the sparrow will fall to the ground and die, he's going to know every aspect of what they're doing in their lives, what they'd go through. This is a glorious comfort and truth that should help us all at this point. God says that we are more valuable than many sparrows. Image bearers of him are so valuable to him that nothing happens to us without his knowledge, comfort, and care. He's got us, church. We should take comfort in how great God is, not in how wonderful we are. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not about how wonderful we are. But God takes notice and care for us because we're valuable to him. He's got us every step of the way. We don't have to fear because of these great truths of who he is. That should comfort us and lead us away from the paralyzing fear in the face of what might happen to us that we don't know. Because God has got us. This is immensely practical and helpful for those gospel farmers then. And it's oh so sweet and comforting for gospel farmers like all believers here in this room today. He's got you. He knows you. He cares for you. He knows your future. It's not chaos to him, but but planned. He's aware. He's there. He's got you in his arms. Dear believer, dear sheep, he's got you. Since time is fleeting here, as I see, we're going to have to land this plane in our last point of persecution quickly uh, because now it comes all down to what we will actually do and how we will respond in light of persecution. Will we shrink and fall away or will we persevere on into the end? This leads us to our last point in number four, persecution, the persecution task. Let's see it in verses 32 now through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you see the persecution test right there? The end of our passage and the context of all that Jesus has been teaching in the second discourse or sermon on the issue of missions and persecution. Do you see the test? Do you see how it relates even to you today? He boils it all down here in a similar way that we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
back then, we saw the two roads or the two gates or the two paths or the two foundations, remember that, in the Sermon on the Mount. He boils things down here at the end of this sermon too. He says, either you have faith in Christ and publicly acknowledge Jesus, even before the persecution of men and women, or you will deny him and fall away. Those are the options here when it comes to persecution. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know how I will hold up under intense persecution like this. Well, take heart, church. Neither does anyone. We don't know. In fact, the more humility that we can have on this point, the better, which is a good rule of thumb for all things. We should heed Jesus' words if we think that it's not a big deal, we're not going to pay attention to what Jesus teaches us here. But we should uh, heed his words and his equipping of us and the strategy for us and the comfort that he gives to us that we've been seeing here in this passage to prepare us for what might happen. But you say, what if I stumble and doubt and fail and trip up? The passage here says Jesus calls us not to do that, but what if I do? Does this mean I'm hell-bound? Well, let's quickly contrast someone who clearly fell but was restored and someone who fell because they were never a genuine believer to begin with as we close. Peter, as we all know, even confidently and proudly stated that even if all the rest fall away, what does he say? Oh, he says foolishly, that he wouldn't. Man, was Peter wrong, wasn't he? But though he fearfully ignored Jesus' teaching here in this second sermon on mission and persecution, and even Jesus' direct prediction and warning about him falling away after the rooster crowed three times, what happened? What happened? Did he continue fearing later into his life and going away from Jesus and rejecting Jesus, denying him? Well, We know the story of Peter, right? He was eventually restored by Jesus and he continued on in his Christian life, even in light of his great rejection and sin under persecution. Judas, on the other hand, was one who would not persevere until the end, would he? Peter, we maybe in the midst of it could have been unsure of because he could have remained away and continued to deny Jesus. But by the grace of God, that didn't happen, and Peter repented and was restored. Judas, though, was one who did not continue to the end, and he apostatized or fell away fully and never turned back to Jesus. Pastor Wood talks about that reality in his Jude series that he just finished up, this falling away. He he fully fell away. And he died at an ire of Christ and someone who would, of course, be in view in this solemn warning and directly applies to him. Jesus denied him or Judas before his heavenly father because Judas unrepentantly denied Jesus all the way into the He didn't continue to the end. Where are you today, church? And where might you be tomorrow? Think about it what may be ahead. If you're sluggish and careless and slow to speak of Jesus today when there's maybe no severe persecution presently upon you, how do you think that you will respond tomorrow or in the future 
if persecution, severe persecution comes your way. This is important for us to think about. We don't know how we're going to respond to the persecution test when it comes, but we can right now go about boldly and publicly professing our love and faith in Jesus before men and women all around us so that we might continue that theme of our lives when opposition comes. It's got to really be true for us, for us to be able to persevere through this. I, do we see that? So the more we cling in faith to Jesus and his word, the more we will be equipped and prepared and on board with the strategy and the comfort and the warning about persecution that is coming our way. Let's pray together to God for help to be bold witnesses under opposition. Pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus' preaching to the needs and realities and problems and suffering and difficulties of life. Thank you that you didn't leave us without important instruction, probing application from Jesus, anticipation of what we might face. Thank you for how that has equipped so many of the martyrs throughout church history, even that teenage girl who lost her life for her faith in Jesus that we heard about earlier, Lord. Thank you for her faith. Thank you for the others who gave their lives in light of persecution, like many of the apostles. Thank you for those in persecuted countries now who are losing their lives for the cause of the gospel. We lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ and oh, that they would see this sermon from Jesus and be directed and equipped and prepared. Would you use this to cause us to live in reckless abandon in truth as Christians to declare these realities, to let what is true come out of us and to entrust our whole lives, every aspect of it, every moment of it to your sovereign hand. Comfort us all. Use this passage to mold us all. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.